This podcast delivered by Australia Post. Whatever you're sending, they make it easy to pay and print your shipping labels from anywhere. And if you're in a metro area, they can come and pick up your parcels with My Post Business. Find out more and go to ozpost.com.au slash podcast. Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to a special edition of the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, Editor-in-Chief at Business Insider Australia, and on this episode I'm joined by Ian Golden, Professor of Globalisation and Development at the University of Oxford, and he's also Director of the Oxford Martin Programme on Technological and Economic Change. Uh, Ian, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure being on it. Um, prior to joining Oxford, Ian was uh, Vice President of the World Bank, where he was uh, director of. Uh, he was also director of bank development policy there, uh, and before that, he was chief executive and managing director at the Development Bank of Southern Africa, and an economic advisor to Nelson Mandela. Quite a list of achievements. Uh, he's published around twenty books, I think, fifty scholarly articles, um, and he's at the centre of uh, thinking and uh, projections on uh, globalisation and technological change and how that's affecting the world. Um, you've spent a year looking at uh, your career, uh, rather, uh, looking at globalization and uh, and how um, uh, different patterns of migration, skills development uh, are affecting national economies and the global economies. Um, what do you think, let's start with what you think machine learning is going to do to the world? Machine learning, I think, is a total revolution. Uh, this is not simply the fourth industrial revolution, which implies it'll be rather like the first, second and third and there'll be a gradual move of people, say, out of agriculture into new employment, etc. Uh, I think about this as really part of what, what I'm thinking about as the new renaissance or an age of discovery, dramatic in its content. And be- machine learning uh, becomes more and more effective over time. You know, so the, these these algorithms learn, <laughs> and uh, with that, uh, there'll be a growing range of things they can do, uh, and we will see, I think, the displacement of anything that's routine and rules based in employment that doesn't require dexterity. So everything from, say, auto production or any manufacturing production, which is a production line type of uh, system but also things like call centers, translation services. Uh, There'll be many back office functions, the sorts of things that you do in banking or in law or in accountancy uh, in back offices. I think these will all disappear very rapidly, like over the next 10, 15 years. And I think one one of the really interesting questions about this is, that process, I suppose, of outsourcing uh, some of those um, more routine tasks from back offices um, has been uh, something that has helped, if you like, um, uh, profitability of companies uh, in in very advanced economies, um, but also helped uh, lift um, the job skill levels in emerging economies. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, this is uh, going back to the world is flat. Uh, uh, you know, Thomas Friedman's book um, that um, all of this stuff was increasingly done by you know, for us in uh, Australia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and then countries around the world in in the likes of India, Pakistan. Um, what do you think about the impacts now that that's going to have? Will it be disruptive? It'll be extremely disruptive, and it really calls into question uh, what we have as development models. The classic model of development is that societies go from being agricultural to manufacturing to services through taking on very routine-based tasks with relatively semi-skilled workers. 
um, doing most of this transition. I think that transition path is gone. So we'll have premature deindustrialization coming. We'll have many, many people in middle-income countries like China, like India, uh, like the Philippines, uh, I think finding that this assumption that uh, this will be the development path is no longer there. Uh, this will be a production system which is determined by the price of capital, not the price of labor. And in that, capital is much cheaper in the advanced economies uh, than emerging economies. So it'll be cheaper to install robots and to have machine intelligence in the advanced economies than it will be in emerging economies. So there'll be a reshoring of production uh, to the advanced economies and of call centers and other machine processes. Uh, of course, this won't be a reshoring which will be labor-intensive. It'll be capital-intensive, so it's not going to create jobs. I see that one of the real downside risks associated with this is a rapid widening of inequality. Uh, large swathes of people, I think, will find that it's challenging to get decent jobs. Uh, there'll be lots of jobs for unskilled and service people, things that don't require... Um, much uh, machinery. So, I mean, a lot of, you know, already in Australia, I think there are more people employed in the fitness sector than there are engineers. Um, and that sort of process will intensify. Uh, but within that, there'll be increasing differentiation as well because the supply of people going into those sectors will increase. And the number of people able to pay for these services uh, is, I think, going to be the question. Who's going to be the employed at, at high wages uh, in these new economies. And that's one of the great challenges I think we face going forward is there's always been disruption in labor markets, but the pace of disruption hmm. uh, is accelerating. And I think also the de-skilling uh, of many parts of the labor market. Many, many things I don't see machines doing for a very long time. I can't see a machine uh, cutting hair um, or doing massages or looking after elderly people or very young people for a long time. Um, so I, I, it's not that there won't be any jobs, and I think we'll still go to great restaurants, and there'll be lots of things that people are valued for, but it'll be creativity and things that machines can't do. And in that process, uh, there are dramatic implications for income distribution and also for geographical location. You mentioned Tom's book. Uh, the world is not becoming more flat, it's becoming much more mountainous. Right. Uh, and this, there'll be a heavy concentration of activities in certain places, particularly the dynamic cities. So Sydney, I think, will thrive. Melbourne will thrive. Um, but it's the places left behind that, that don't. And we see this dramatically in the UK. We see it dramatically in the US. Um, cities like New York, San Francisco, Chicago doing very well. And of course, voting for change. Mm. Um, it's not that people are rejecting change when they vote for President Trump or when they vote for Brexit, vote for Marie Le Pen, uh, or even Zuma in South Africa. Uh, people are basically saying, we can't change. We're stuck. We're left behind. It's mm. the place. It's not the, the dynamic urban centers that are voting uh, for protectionism, nationalism, that are most against immigration, etc., it's, there tends to be the rural areas and smaller towns. Um, and, and that's the big issue. That's going to become more and more differentiated because people can't afford to go to 
the big dynamic cities. I've heard you say before that, um, you know, in presentations that, uh, you know, welcome to the slowest day um, of the rest <laughs> of your life. Uh, it, it really is extraordinarily dramatic for, you know, for somebody who's been watching this uh, for decades now. Um, does it surprise you the speed at, uh, at which it's uh, at which um, this is gathering pace? In some respects, but I've been arguing for a long time that innovation is accelerating. There's a big debate out there. You know, many economists and many uh, skeptics like Peter Thiel and Gary Kasparov and um, Robert Gordon and others uh, are writing books saying that innovation is slowing down. Uh, and I've, I've really believed that what we're seeing coming out of the labs, and this is true of machine intelligence as well. We're, not, we haven't, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg at the moment. Uh, it's still mostly uh, in labs and development. Uh, is is just driven by an explosion of creativity and genius around the world. You know, we move, and that's because of globalization. It's because we move from a world of only about 400 million educated, connected people in the 1980s to a world now of over 6 billion literate people, of which over 5 billion are connected. Uh, and in that process, there's just an eruption of a random distribution of exceptional talent, but much more significant than that. This connectivity leads to sparks and diverse teams working together. So it's, whether it's on new cures for cancer or whether it's on machine intelligence or whether it's on the latest hip-hop dances, the pace of innovation is accelerating. And, and it's interesting that the, um, the, the question for cities in these in environments are supposed to be competitive at unlocking that creativity is the platform that any city provides for allowing those skills and ideas to um, connect with each other and unlock new ideas, which is something that you know San Francisco, the Bay Area, Bay Area has been doing, I think, quite successfully for a long time. Um, but it's also probably why one of the reasons why you see politically this division between the big um, urbanized uh, centers and um, then, say, the classic example, the Rust Belt, um, and then sort of north of London, yep. as we saw Rust Belt in the United States and, 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 yep. and, the, and the areas north of London, um, Sunderland, et cetera, that, um, that uh, voted for Brexit. That's, that's right. And it's not, it's not simply that people are feeling psychologically left out. They are being left out. You know, if you look at things like life expectancy, which really matters, um, the life expectancy of people in many towns in the Midwest today for white American males, non-Hispanics, is lower than their parents, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, and their rates of unemployment are higher, and their prospects of getting a job are lower than their parents. So when people are angry with the system, they have good reason to be angry. Uh, basically, their lives are pretty miserable. And there's some really interesting data coming out on how their life expectancy has been damaged by all of this, you know, what's called the diseases of despair, alcoholism, suicide, drug addiction, murder, crime. Um, these are more prevalent than they used to be. And so when people say globalization hasn't done anything for me, it's ruined my life, I think they, they're telling the truth. Um, and when they say that this is something which is benefiting the elites in the coastal cities but not us, that's real. And you look at the inequality data, you see it. Uh, it's rising in all countries. And the more that countries globalize, the higher the rates of inequality. And that's because the returns to being on the frontier, the returns to being skilled, to being able to be in the right place at the right time in the cities, to be able to change jobs, the returns to flexibility, the returns to be able to adjust 
are greater when societies change more rapidly. But people also get left behind more quickly when things change more quickly. And it's that we need to grapple with as societies. And unless we can manage that, I think we'll see the pushback that we're seeing, which is rising tide against globalization. That would be a tragedy because it would not only slow down the prospects of growth and development, but also of dealing with the big problems like climate change, uh, like pandemics, like cyber attacks. All of these things require more cooperation and more understanding of what other countries are doing and how we're going to work together, uh, not a withdrawal from this international system. This is a real challenge, isn't it, though? Because um, while you know the forces of globalization have long been uh, a positive for the global economy at an aggregate level, mm. um, within domestic economies, uh, it hollows out uh, particular types of jobs uh, and increasingly we're seeing this particularly in manufacturing in Australia for example over the last decade has really shrunk as a component mm. um, of the economy and this creates all of this creates a tension uh, between what seems to be right for the global economy um, at one level and what seems to be a good idea at the macro global level might not be smart politics for a government or a political party that is seeking uh, to get itself re-elected and trying uh, to try and deliver programs of government that are going to um, plug effectively into that broader system. Yes, I think what, what globalization does is it accelerates the opportunities as well as the risks. And that requires smarter governments, smarter policies to be able to harvest the opportunities, ensure the country benefits from all the incredible things happening around the world, whether it's new technologies that need us to live longer lives, healthier lives, new technologies like mobile phones, which are you know, totally a symbol of globalization, built in like you know, 30, 40 countries, uh, or whatever we can harvest from globalization, the new jobs, the export markets, etc. That's all globalization. At the same time, uh, we need to recognize that there's an underbelly to this, and that unless we are wide awake to the risks. And the risks come in, in a number of forms. The one sort of risk is that when we connect, we become more interdependent and we're more subject to contagion. We link up our financial systems. That's very good. We'll have better financial systems, etc. But we're subject to global cascading financial crises. We link up our cyber systems. Cannot imagine our lives without that. And yet we subject to global cyber attacks. Uh, we link up our airports with other airports. We want that a cheaper travel, more travel, but we're more subject to pandemics because the super spreaders of the goods of globalization, be they banking hubs or cyber hubs or airport hubs, become the super spreaders of the bads like pandemics, cyber attacks, financial crises. So that's one sort of challenge, and that requires management. Also at security policy level, so yeah, sure, diplomacy, um, the sort of westernization, if you like, or sort of, you know, there's the five eyes uh, in intelligence mm. network, mm. Um, and then a broader sort of interlinked uh, countries that are sort of white Anglosphere um, and Western um, that are targets increasingly of, um, you know, the disaffected, the angry um, coming out, yeah. those movements coming well, out. Not, of the, not the only release. good things connect, really bad stuff connects too. And that's mm -hmm. what we need to be aware of when we open our trading systems, you know, drugs and arms travel as well, uh, sex trafficking, etc. And of course, not only good people use social media, ISIS uh, wouldn't exist really as we know it uh, without social media and has become the biggest recruiter of foreign fighters since the Spanish Civil War using 
social media. That's why I'm rather skeptical of the sort of Silicon Valley view of the world, which is there's no problem an app cannot solve. <laughs> um, you know, there's institutions and politics matter. And there's a battle of ideas out there and a battle of the use of these technologies that we need to engage in. All technologies can be used for immense good and immense harm. So, so let me let me ask you about that, right? So, one of the great sources of political resistance that we're seeing um, at a national level, we saw it in we manifested in UKIP in Britain. Um, you get streaks of it, um, uh, you know, American nationalism uh, in the the Trump broader Trump movement. Um, uh, we we occasionally hear this kind of stuff here in Australia too. Um, this issue with supranational legislative institutions, the European Union being the obvious one. Uh, that affected Britain or how does affect Britain um, but also in terms of say managing climate change you have the United Nations and the pro various processes, processes that they go through there um, to try and uh, control that but um, people say well um, you know why should we partake of this in, if, if these rules are getting uh, telegraphed to us from these institutions in which we have um, only a marginal say. Um, what's your answer to dealing with those I, challenges? I think we, we all need to accept that as we live in a more and more joined up world, where the spillovers of our actions affect other people and their actions affect us more and more. And that's a product both of wealth. If you look poor in a village in the middle of the country, what the world does doesn't really affect you and what you do doesn't really affect the world. But as you become wealthier and wealthier and more and more connected, everything we do, whether it's our choice to take an antibiotic, our choice to have a tuna su sushi, our choice to drive a car and put up some carbon into the atmosphere, whatever our choices are, they spill over effects. Uh, antibiotic resistance, uh, elimination of the tuna, climate change, etc. And we need to realize that our freedoms, which are freedoms to choose to do what we want, and that's why we value democracy and that's why we want wealth, uh, so we have more freedom, uh, must come with constraints because of the spillover effect. And this is a very old story. Uh, and so I think we'll find that as um, we live in a more integrated world with more and more people who are wealthy, uh, that we're going to have to accept that the cost of this is that we have slightly less decision making. There'll be, you know, basically limits on how much carbon we can put in the atmosphere, how many antibiotics we can use, etc. Now, Australia has benefited immensely from being part of supranational systems. You know, the, the classic one is the World Trade Organization, the GATT before that. As an export country, it would have been really hamstrung if barriers to trade hadn't been reduced by other countries as part of global negotiations. And it's been at the forefront of the CANs and other groups on that. And it's also been at the forefront of many other negotiations. So I think um, we need to move to a world where we accept some constraints on sovereignty, that countries cannot decide to do whatever they want uh, because it's in interests of everyone that there's cooperative behavior, whether it's on nuclear weapons, whether it's on pandemic management, cyber management, trade, or whatever. Having said that, I don't think that everyone has to decide everything. And um, I think the danger is then you go down to the lowest con common denominator with people for strength. I think we should move much more to coalitions of the working. And what those coalitions are will depend on what the issues are. On climate change, about a dozen countries account for 90% of emissions 
they the ones that need to act. New York State uh, produces more carbon emissions than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa, 54 countries. Mm -hmm. So getting the critical actors to be part of the solution, of course, you can't put all the mafia bosses in a room and ask them to write a criminal justice system. So you wouldn't want to put all the big polluters in a room and ask them to write a climate change agreement. (laughs) But... If you put the Maldives and Bangladesh in the room with them, you must probably get legitimacy. Um, so I think the sort of representative multilateralism uh, is where I think we practically need to go. And that means that countries that really have a bigger stake in something need to be amongst the first actors. Let me take you back to something you touched on earlier, uh, which was the comparisons um, to uh, the Renaissance um, and where you had this uh, funding of this great level of cre- uh, creativity um, in Italy, but um, was also uh, accompanied by a huge amounts of um, social change. So um, uh, the, the Reformation, the, the sort of changes in power to the Catholic Church, um, all of this played out in, you know, Shakespeare's plays. And, you know, you had this very, you know, you had the arrival of um, widespread distribution of printed material. Um, but um, it was a time of great upheaval and the politics of Europe were continued to be shaped by it for, um, for for centuries afterwards. Um, do you want to expand on some of that? Because I've heard some <laughs> of it. I've, I've heard you talking about it before, and I thought it would be good for you to give you an opportunity to share some of it with, <laughs> thanks, with our thanks, listeners. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, well, it is the subject of, of, um, of my new book, Age of Discovery, and the subtitle is Navigating the Risks and Rewards of Our New Renaissance. And... Um, I do believe that it's it's really necessary to try and make sense of this time we're in. Uh, I wrote the book with um, Chris Kutana, and together we, we're trying to understand why is it that we're in such a tumultuous time? Why are people rejecting uh, globalization? Why are people rejecting change? And um, what reference period makes sense? And, and we're pretty convinced that the Renaissance is the most interesting period. Now, it's partly because there was an information revolution then. Before the Gutenberg Press, uh, basically only monks could read and write in Latin, handwritten manuscripts, very expensive in monasteries. Less than 1% of Europe was literate. And the, the explosion of this press led to 250 million books being printed in a 50-year period, and billions of political pamphlets. And ideas traveled like wildfire. People had a yearning to learn, to be literate in their own languages. And we had these explosions of science and arts that we celebrate 500 years later, from the da Vinci's and Michelangelo's and everyone to the Corpinicus's, later Galileo, etc. Circumnavigation of the world from a flat world uh, to Mercator's projection. Unfortunately, only Australia was left out by Mercator. Which is but, right. But, but he had the rest of the world they're pretty much there. Um, and in that process, everything yeah. changed. Um, but it ended in tears. It ended in the bonfire of the vanities, the burning of books, the hounding of intellectuals, jihadists led by Savonarola, t- deposing the Medicis in Florence the voyages of discovery spreading diseases that killed most Native Americans. These pushbacks and unintended consequences, the systemic risks, what I call in another book, the butterfly defect of globalization was manifest then. And you had religious war as a result. You had the Inquisitions. In my college in Oxford, Balliol College, people were hung. Uh, It had been Catholic. Uh, Went through a massive 
massive split the Catholic Church. And what we saw then was the use of new technologies to basically mobilize people against corruption. You could buy your way to heaven with indulgences in the Catholic Church then. Um, and to attack the elites, effectively, who were totally out of touch. The furs and spices and gold came back from the New World didn't benefit 95% of the population. They couldn't afford it, and the scribes were put out of work. People basically said, this period of change is not for us. We're losing our ethical basis of society. We're being laid out of work. We're eating gruel, and we'll depose the elite. The the parallels are very clear uh, then to um, a lot of what we're seeing in uh, advanced economies, advanced democracies uh, today. Um, I think, you know, there's... For a long time, there's been a fundamental optimism surrounding this, the forces of globalization and the opportunities it can provide. But um, uh, ha looking in drawing those parallels with the with the Renaissance, do you sort of retain your optimism, particularly yeah, I, what's happening around the world over the last year? I'm I'm very optimistic because um, my interest is primarily one of development. Um, and uh, the other book, um, which was brought up, The Pursuit of Development, shows how this period has been shown associated with the most rapid progress by far the world has ever known. Life expectancy in the world on average has increased by about 20 years in this period of globalization. It took from the Stone Age uh, to achieve that. Uh, average incomes have gone up dramatically. The number of people in absolute poverty has gone down dramatically. Literacy and virtually any indicator except the environmental indicators have improved dramatically. So it's very difficult to say this process has been bad um, other than on environmental grounds. And uh, that's why I'm optimistic. I'm also optimistic because I believe in human creativity and ingenuity, and this has unlocked more of this than any process in history around the world. So you have to be optimistic that there's more brain power going into problem solving, whether it's stopping cancer, or whether it's stopping climate change than ever in history. The challenge is the disconnect between that and politics and our understanding of it. And the reason that I'm so passionate and look to history and do the analysis on multiple dimensions of migration, of risk, etc., is I really think our political system is stuck in a pre-globalized age. It's stuck in an age where governments think that they can determine national policy independently, that they're not up to speed with both the opportunities and the risks. They don't understand the technologies. They didn't in the financial crisis. That's why we got a financial crisis. Kids were playing with things that, you know, the audit committees and the global institutions and reserve bank and central banks who were meant to be very bright people don't understand. If you want to understand why people don't trust experts and authority anymore, it's because these are the people that brought you the financial crisis. Yeah. Um, they let us down badly, and they are the experts. So we need to reskill, we need to retool, and it's both about the expertise in managing our interconnected systems, it's understanding the technologies, it's having an ethical basis for this, which has completely been lost in this period by the greed, and we need to ensure that we vote for politicians who are able to navigate in this in this very very rapidly evolving world? Because there's a hugely uh, challenging uh, notion underlying this, which is that some sac uh, sovereignty on on some issues may need to be um, uh, relinquished. 
Um, yes, I, I think we, you know, <laughs> it's in our long run interest that we stop climate change. It's in our long run interest that we stop pandemics. It's in our, it's, it's this relinquishment of national interest isn't uh, a long term self sacrifice, but politics is a short term game. And that's the big challenge is, you know, just stop these politicians kicking the can down the road. Uh, so that our children will face massive crises, be they climate change or be they instability in the world of different types. Australia is very fortunate because it's it's a relatively wealthy country um, and it's a very educated country. So my hope is that you know one of the paradoxes is that as people become wealthier and more educated, they don't seem to necessarily be able to adapt more rapidly and we need to really ensure that's the case in Australia, in the UK, in the US uh, the, the people that are pro-globalization now are not in the advanced economies you know, China is one of the most pro-globalized globalizing countries in the world that's right uh, uh, and, and even to... India is now um, yeah. and, and this is sort of a paradox because these are the countries we used to try and convince to open up and to integrate and to play a role in global institutions and all of those things. Now, if you read President Xi's recent speeches, he's really the cheerleader, not only for globalization but for global cooperation uh, on climate change and on, other, on trade on other areas. Can I specifically ask you just quickly on China about how you see their role now uh, going forward? Because um, one of the big changes for, for China was following that process that you alluded to earlier, where you get this industrialization, the upskilling, this growth of the middle class, et cetera, and then um, it, its transition to a services economy has been a big theme um, over the last couple of years for, for Beijing um, and for policymakers. Um, but um, with all of this disruption that's happening uh, and the fact that they, in, in that process they've become the world's second largest economy and also hugely remain a hugely important strategic uh, player, um, can I ask you just quickly to talk about how do you think about their role now? China uh, really has been a huge beneficiary of globalization. And by globalization, I simply mean integration, opening up to not only products and services, but ideas, and ideas are the most important thing uh, that flow across borders. Um, so China's been an enormous beneficiary. It's No country has ever in history brought so many people out of poverty so quickly. You know, it's just quite astounding from a development perspective. Uh, my own sense is one of great optimism about the future of China. That's really based on the capacity of the leadership uh, which I think is by far the smartest and more ca most capable leadership in the world uh, in terms of running a government. They basically are a highly developed civil service that experiments a lot, experiments at the municipal, at the provincial level, uh, and then replicates and scales experimentation. Uh, by the time you get into central government, uh, into a leadership decision-making position, you've spent your career... Uh, understanding and working at all sorts of different ways and experimenting. So it's the, there are many things that can be said against the political system. <laughs> but, um, but its ability to absorb ideas uh, and to lead is greater than any other country in the world. And I think that makes me optimistic. Uh, it, it's got a long way to go. Of course, if you read the financial press, 
you'd think that 6% or 6.5% growth like they're experiencing at the moment is a disaster. It's a bit slower than the 10 plus percent they had 10 years ago, but size matters as well. So 10, 6% growth on a 17 trillion US dollar economy uh, means they add more value every day than when they were growing at 10% on an $8 trillion economy 10 years ago. Um, and that really matters. They can't, you know, when you're very big, you can't keep growing very fast forever. You'd be the whole world economy before long. Um, and so uh, it's, a, it's extraordinarily powerful. It's also very good for the world economy. Uh, the fact there's so many growth engines now, India's another one, uh, other Asian countries, uh, stabilizes global growth and lifts global growth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have a lot to thank that emerging markets, and particularly Asia, which would be, uh, Asia's already 60% of global growth. Uh, um, it's just quite extraordinary. And for countries in the region, this is an amazingly powerful force going forward. I think it's sustainable for at least the next 20 years. Mm. Uh, and um, it's certainly going to be fascinating to watch it uh, play out. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. My guest has been Ian Golden, Professor uh, of Globalization and Development at Oxford. Ian, thanks uh, so much for joining us on the show. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you for having me. Fascinating chat. Uh, you can find the show on iTunes where you can rate us and leave us a review. Um, and for our daily news features and economic and business analysis, we're on the web at businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter at BIAUS. Thanks for listening. This podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.